Do you understand the ramifications that this case could have? It was supposed to be a system that, that benefited all sides. So here's the $64,000 question. COVID-19, in my opinion, is the meteorite that hit the earth. It's headed to the Supreme Court in a bunch of different lanes. Tell us about that. Welcome to Civilly Speaking with host Sean Harris. Each month, Civilly Speaking brings you interviews on practical and timely legal issues on the local and national level. We hope these stories inspire you and remind you of the impact we have as advocates for our clients. We'll see you here on the next episode of Civilly Speaking. Hello, and welcome to Civilly Speaking, OAJ's podcast for trial lawyers by trial lawyers. I'm your host, Sean Harris. Today, we're going to be talking about asbestos litigation and legislation going on in Ohio and around the country. Before we get started, a quick sponsor message. Allocare Solutions has a nationally and regionally recognized team and has been providing expert services to individuals with disabilities and chronic illnesses for over 25 years. They have a team of veteran nurses, social workers, certified care planners, case managers, rehabilitation counselors, and research associates that has the expertise and resources to meet your needs. Contact Megan Terry at Megan, M-E-G-A-N dot Terry, T-E-R-R-Y, at ProMedica.org. Our guest today is Sean Acton, partner with Kelly and Ferraro in Cleveland, Ohio. One of his main areas of practice is asbestos litigation, and he served as lead trial counsel in cases that have resulted in major jury verdicts in favor of mesothelioma victims' families. Sean, thanks so much for joining us here today on Civilly Speaking. And Sean, thanks for having me. At the outset, um, can you give us kind of a the 10,000-foot uh, view of uh, asbestos litigation in Ohio? I guess I don't even know how many cases are, are still around. How many? I mean, it seems like uh, they've stopped making uh, asbestos, but the cases continue. What, where do we stand today? Well, well, first of all, uh, th there's a good reason for that, because most asbestos-related diseases are associated with a, an extremely long latency period. In other words, you could be uh, exposed 20, 30, 40 years ago, and, the, and these diseases won't manifest uh, until uh, decades later. Um, the amount of cases which in Ohio are primarily uh, centered in Cuyahoga County due to the fact that we have a dedicated asbestos judge, um, there are, uh, you know, probably around a hundred, a couple hundred, um, which is a very different legal landscape than in the past. And, and the reason for that is the Ohio legislature has legislated out certain uh, claims um, due to uh, tort reform measures. So um, the, the uh, amount of cases have definitely decreased, um, but um, nevertheless, um, you know, that we're still prosecuting them on behalf of injured workers and their families. And the cases stem from any kind of exposure, right? We think of it in, um, you know, floor materials in residential settings or in, you know, wrapping around pipes, but obviously shipbuilding and industry and, and all kinds of different types of industries. Absolutely. And it's been quoted that, that asbestos was used in anywhere from three to 5,000 different types of products. It was a, uh, 
It was dubbed the miracle mineral uh, back in the 60s due to its uh, fire retardant and heat resistant properties. Unfortunately, um, it causes some very nasty, incurable cancers, most notably malignant mesothelioma. And and just for our listeners sake, when we say mesothelioma, what does that mean? Sure. So mesothelioma is a cancer that occurs in the thin membrane outside of the lungs. It is not a lung cancer. Uh, And um, the interesting thing, there's a couple of interesting things about mesothelioma that I'll just give you kind of the bullet points. Number one, it's been studied since 1960. And uh, the medical and scientific communities have determined uh, without any doubt that asbestos is the uh, only cause of malignant mesothelioma with a few and rare exceptions that are most usually not applicable to most people living in the United States. Uh, the other interesting thing is, is that it's a rare tumor. Uh, there's about 3,000 cases that are diagnosed in the U.S. each year. And um, the other interesting thing about it is that it doesn't take much to cause the disease. Uh, unfortunately, I've represented uh, children of of uh, people who got mesothelioma and the only source is their father coming home with a, with uh, asbestos fibers on their work clothes. So that's a good example of, of, of um, you know, the fact that, you know, it doesn't take much and it can occur in the occupational setting. It can occur at home. Uh, it can, like I said, it, it can be, uh, you know, there are many, many reported cases where the wife got it just by sole nature of washing their husband's uh, asbestos-laden clothes. And unfortunately, lastly, the, the other thing is, is that there's no cure treatment, okay? Once you get this, you generally have six, to, six months to a year to live. Uh, there's no treatment. Palliative care is the only cure that's, that's available to these people. In other words, we're going to give you drugs and everything we can to make you comfortable uh, before this disease suffocates you within. So um, that's the that's mesothelioma. And going back to the cause, uh, for example, a lot of people think smoking might have something to do with this disease because it's a thoracic cancer. No, uh, you could, you know, this is a, 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 a an example, you could literally smoke 100 packs of cigarettes a day for 50 years, and that cigarette smoke would never cause this particular type of cancer. And that's really the legal basis of the claims, is my understanding, is that once there's a diagnosis of mesothelioma, by definition, we know it was caused by one of the one of the companies that manufactured it. Absolutely. Uh, Sean, talk to us about, in asbestos cases, what the, the legal causes of action are that you pursue. Sure. Um, so several years ago, um, Ohio abrogated, you know, common law product liability claims and most asbestos cases, although not all of them, involve uh, generally a few types of claims. Um, we have a statutory product liability claim that we uh, you, you know, typically pursue in these cases. I can tell you that um, you know, the standard in those cases and, and all of, most product liability cases that involve failure to warn are, did the company know or should they have known about the uh, dangers of asbestos and failed to provide either a warning or if they did provide a warning, was that warning adequate? Since the 1930s, it's been reported widely in the literature that asbestos causes lung cancer. We know that. Um, in 1960, um, it was uh, there was this guy in South Africa, his name's Wagner, although it looks like Wagner. Um, he uh, studied some miners that were mining uh, a, a particular type of asbestos in South Africa and started seeing these weird cancers. Uh, and um, as time went on, 
more and more studies were done. And certainly by uh, 1964, it was well uh, established in the medical literature, including literature published in the U.S., that asbestos is a cause of this disease called malignant mesothelioma. And these companies, a lot of them had doctors, uh, industrial hygienists, all type of people, sophisticated people employed uh, by these companies. And they, they kind of ignored it. And they kept making this uh, product or products that contained asbestos, exposed millions of people to it. And um, in some instances, didn't say anything. And in some instances, uh, if they did put a warning or instruction on the packaging that the end users would use, it was a woefully inadequate warning. And, and generally didn't even use the word cancer because the degree of harm on a warning is important. Um, so, uh, there's also in the product liability context, design defects claims that we, uh, pursue. Um, and then outside of that, um, a lot of people don't realize this, Sean, but, uh, in Ohio, um, individuals are also, t uh, entitled to file workers' compensation claims, uh, for their asbestos-related diseases, or in the case of death, a workers' compensation claim for the widow. And Sean, that's true, even if the person retired decades before, um, they found out that they had the disease because that, you know, most people will say, wait a minute, I retired in 1990. How the heck can I file a workers' compensation claim? Uh, well, in Ohio, you can because the uh, Ohio law recognizes that it's unfair to, to punish these people uh, and say you can't file a claim due to the long latency period because you're talking, you know, sometimes 20 years after uh, you were exposed, you'll get this disease. So if it happened at work and it's within the scope of course of employment, uh, the widow or the injured worker would also be able to file a uh, claim under the Ohio Workers' Compensation Act. Uh, any interesting uh, verdicts or legal issues around Ohio that you've seen uh, recently crop up with asbestos cases? Sure, Sean. Um, I can give you the most uh, recent example. I actually tried the first uh, uh, jury trial to verdict uh, post-COVID in Cuyahoga County. Uh, it involved a uh, widow whose husband uh, died of malignant mesothelioma. And after a three-week trial, we were able to uh, secure a verdict against the defendant. So that's probably the most uh, recent example of an asbestos verdict uh, here in Ohio. And what kinds of trends are we seeing nationally outside of Ohio when it comes to asbestos cases? So sure, one of the things that that we've been dealing with, and I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because it's 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 problematic for mesothelioma victims. Um, one of the things that we've seen nationally is these defendants uh, using the uh, United States Bankruptcy Code um, to um, lessen or totally cut off uh, their liability uh, for their conduct that caused injury to to these families and. Um, one of the things that we've seen of late is something called the Texas two-step. Uh, legally speaking, that's been also called divisive mergers. And, and, and Sean, this, let me first, if it's okay, kind of go through what this entails, because it, it's, it's not only important to mesothelioma victims, but I think all victims of uh, personal injury victims in, in Ohio and elsewhere. And essentially, here's what it involves. You have a company that injured somebody, okay? And, um, or in, in the case of asbestos, a large number of people. And what essentially the company will do is split itself into two. 
Okay, you'll the you'll have uh, uh, a new company uh, that is brand new uh, for, and typically formed in states that have uh, favorable corporate statutes, uh, most notably Texas. And the company creates the new company, still exists. So now you have two companies. And then what they do is they transfer all of their liabilities, which includes liabilities for personal injury and their conduct. They transfer it to the new company that's in the let's say Texas, and they may exist for a day or two, a week or two, and then that new company files for bankruptcy. And the old company still exists. They're still selling their products. They're conducting business as usual. And um, the problem with that is, is, as most of us personal injury lawyers know, is that when a company uh, avails itself of the, and files for bankruptcy, uh, you know, there's an automatic stay. And what that means uh, to the listeners is essentially the whole thing stops. The whole personal injury stops. You can't do anything. You certainly can't try a case. You certainly can't obtain uh, your day in court. And uh, you can't ob obtain a just verdict against that bankrupt entity. Now, um, the issue with that is, is that the companies that are doing this, availing themselves of this legal loophole, uh, for lack of a better description, they'll tell you that it's good for the companies because what we're going to do is we're going to have some um, certainty with, with what goes on with these personal injury victims. And number two, we'll set up a trust that's monitored by the bankruptcy court to compensate these victims. Well, that doesn't tell the whole story, Sean, because number one, a lot of times these trusts are, are, are underfunded. Um, and number two, after the evaluation process is done, these people are being compensated pennies on a dollar. And there is not a court or a jury that looks at that particular individual and says, okay, these are your damages, this is what happened to you. And essentially what it, what it allows these companies to do is to have the old company make its profits and conduct business as usual, and then um, significantly curtail or totally cut off uh, their liability for the past conduct by this shell game, transferring the liabilities to a new company and filing for bankruptcies. Um, so that's kind of what, what's been going on of late. And the two most notable examples are uh, Georgia Pacific did this. That's a uh, a wholly owned company by the uh, Koch brothers uh, that many of us are familiar about. And then most recently, uh, Johnson & Johnson has done it as it relates to their asbestos-containing talc products like baby powder and stuff like that. So um, until Congress steps in, and they have had a congressional hearings about this, my my opinion is this will continue. It's, it, it's bad for injured victims, and it, it, it cuts off their access to open courts and the jury system, which is the bedrock of our democracy. Certainly, if the asbestos manufacturers see that uh, the other corporations in talcum powder and, and other um, mass tort type situations are successful in, in uh, at the very least stalling uh, or perhaps uh, getting out of their responsibilities, you would expect the other corporations to t take full advantage of this legal maneuver uh, euphemistically called the Texas two-step. Correct. So... I do expect, uh, in, especially in the in the Johnson Johnson case, that that is still kind of working its way through the court. Um, 
gosh, why isn't that a fraud? Uh, why isn't that a, a fraudulent conduct um, on behalf of these corporations transferring out assets to an undercapitalized entity? It, that's an excellent question, Sean, because I think a lot of people would characterize this conduct as a fraudulent transfer. But uh, there are several states in um, in, in, in the U.S. that allow for this. And that's why, uh, you know, a lot of people are doing this in Texas and other states. And like I said, until Congress steps in, I, I, I think that other companies will will, uh, you know, do this. So that's kind of where we are on that front. Sean, what do we see legislatively going on in Ohio as regard in regards to uh, asbestos claims? Sure. There's there's one um, notable piece of proposed litigation that is uh being discussed uh, over at the state house, and that's uh, a bill that will require asbestos victims uh, to uh, disclose very early on in the case. In other words, 30 days uh, after filing the case, uh, very specific details about the injured workers' exposure, uh, including the exact uh, location within a facility they were exposed, the exact manner in which they were exposed, uh, the exact frequency and duration. And while if you look at it at first blush, some would say that's not a big deal because they're um, elements of, of the legal claims that we as asbestos lawyers have to prove. And that's absolutely true. Those are elements. However, the timing of this uh, requirement is extremely problematic because if you go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, you have an individual that has six to eight months to live. Um, during that you know, six, eight months or a year, you know, they're trying to, you know, treat with their doctors, you know, they're not thinking about lawsuits, and then the person dies. So I would say that almost virtually all of my clients, when they come to me, are widows of, uh, you know, their husbands had died or their wife had died, or the my client is a child who's the administrator of the estate, and they just don't have those exact details um, at 30 days after the case is filed. Um, that's not to say that that evidence will come out later through coworker depositions and things like that in accordance with the rules and, and orders of case management orders uh, of any particular court. But the problem is requiring it that early on um, is that the statute as proposed now says, well, if you don't, if you don't exactly comply and check every box um, and, and disclose this 30 days, your case is going to be dismissed. And that's extremely problematic because uh, you know, lawyers depend, you know, regardless of whether they're on the plaintiff or defense side, that evidence isn't developed, you know, 30 days after the case is filed. So that almost like that's kind of the purpose of discovery to learn facts. Well, Sean, that's a that's a great point. I mean, that's that's the whole point of uh, discovery. And essentially, um, you know, discovery does not occur 30 days after the case is filed. And it certainly isn't completed. It's it's impossible. And it's impossible for the plaintiff to do that. It's impossible for the defendant to complete discovery. I mean, Sean, we have 30 days to answer discovery after it's filed. You know, so um, yeah, that that's that's one piece of legislation that that is problematic. And let me ask you about that, Sean. We know why uh, why it would be in their interest to push this legislation. But but do they give reasons as to why they, you know, why uh, this should be required in asbestos cases and not any other case? Sure. The 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 
alleged reason is that there's a claim by some that uh, defendants are overnamed in asbestos litigation. Uh, that is simply not true. Um, you know, there are um, a lot of times where we have a, an injured worker that worked out of a union hall. So he's going to be working at for 12 different employers or more over his career and maybe 100, 200 job sites. So there's a lot of different products uh, that, um, you know, he may that individual <clears throat> may have been exposed to. And as you know, Sean, the Ohio's product liability statute provides uh, liability for manufacturers and suppliers. So there might be, if you take one, an exposure to one product that, that caused somebody a disease, there may be um, you know, three or four companies that are responsible for that, placing that product into the stream of commerce that ultimately uh, you know, exposed an individual and, and had an adverse outcome such as cancer. So um, there might be three or four companies that are responsible for one product and, and of course responsible for only their fair share of the harm done. Is there other additional legislation that they're talking about in Ohio? Uh, not, nothing of note right now. Uh, only legislation that, that I'm aware of right now is, is the one we just spoke about. And I can tell you that myself and OHA uh, have been aggressive in trying to meet with legislatures and, and have them understand the problematic nature uh, of, of this bill and how it will adversely affect uh, injured workers and their families in Ohio. You know, we talked earlier, you'd mentioned the idea of uh, some of these uh, companies setting up uh, claims funds. Uh, and it got me thinking, am I correct that the the idea of a claims fund, we wouldn't necessarily oppose? It's it's simply amount of uh, adequate funding. Well, that's one of the issues. Uh, the, the problem is, is that you know, these these companies have insurance to cover uh, verdicts where appropriate um, instead of like proceeding along, you know, like we normally do in litigation. You know, they're creating these, uh, you know, kind of loopholes to be able to transfer those li liabilities to a new company and then have that company file for bankruptcy. So, yes, generally speaking, these companies are in some instances uh, setting up these bankruptcy trusts. But again, um, you know, even if they are, even if a trust is uh, not underfunded, um, they never, ever make a plaintiff whole. You know, you're, it could be a dime on a dollar or whatever phrase you want to use to to relay the fact that these people are not being made whole or anywhere close to whole. Because bankruptcy trusts, what, are administered by a special master or some somebody appointed like that? Sure. So the, the way they're generally set up is they're, they're overseen by the uh, you know, bankruptcy judge that, that is dealing with the, the bankruptcy case. And then it's funded through you know, monies from the companies or insurance proceeds or whatever. And then each trust will have a set of trustees that's sort of the fiduciary for the fund. And then you, know, you, you submit claims. And if, if the evidence satisfies their requirements, there will be a compensation award. But again, um, nothing that even comes close to, to uh, uh, you know, making the injured person and their families whole. And I think to your point, why set up this quasi-judicial uh, scenario when, gosh, it seems like the Seventh Amendment and the right to trial by jury has already established the f proper framework to uh, resolve these claims? Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, Sean, it's it's fascinating that the the asbestos world is kind of a microcosm for you know really what's going on 
across the spectrum of what OHA members are uh, facing. We've got um, the the business interests and corporations trying to limit their responsibility across the board, whether that be car insurance or asbestos or physicians, malpractice, whatever it is. Um, it's kind of uh, an example of what we see in, in every situation. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, as, as you know, Sean, in various uh, types of cases. This has been going on for, for quite some time now. And, and this is an issue politically that a lot of people don't realize. Um, I have people that are clients, and I think we all have clients, will come to us and say, you know, I'm not the suing type. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm against this, I'm against that. And then when, when it comes time, it, some, God forbid, something horrible happens to them, they say, what do you mean there's damage caps in Ohio? <laughs> a, ju- a jury should decide this. And I have to say, Yes, you're correct. Um, you know, but unfortunately, I think a lot of people aren't paying attention as you know, you know, to what's going on in in, in the state house and beyond, um, because uh, you know, damage caps are, are are an issue too. And for all you listeners out there, if you like our podcast, be sure to subscribe on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you here on the next episode of Civilly Speaking. <laughs>